Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and uh, it's my great pleasure today to see on my computer screen my friend, Elisa Gabbert, um, who is going to be our guest today. Um, Elisa um, has chosen a poem that um, I was like, when she chose this poem, I was like, oh, man, are you, are you sure? Are we ready for this? Um, it's a poem that I'm sure many of you know already and have your feelings about. The poem is Lady Lazarus by Sylvia Plath. Um, and I should say, um, just before we get into this conversation, for, for people who don't know the poem at all or don't know much of, of anything about Sylvia Plath, um, I just wanted to give a, a bit of a content warning here that um, the, the poem uh, uh, will raise issues like um, suicide and self-harm and um, includes uh, some violent imagery um, drawn really, I'm thinking from the legacy of World War II. Um, so, you know, just want people to be aware of that before we dive into the conversation. Um, let me tell you more about our guest uh, Elisa Gabbert is the author of six collections of poetry, essays, and criticism, with a seventh uh, coming out soon. Um, let me tell you about a couple of the recent books. Um, so her, um, her most recent book is a book of poems called Normal Distance, which was published by Soft Skull in 2022. Um, before that, Elisa's book, The Unreality of Memory and Other Essays, came out from FSG Originals and Atlantic UK in 2020 when it seemed, I think, to many readers like an uncanny publication to have appearing in the early days of the pandemic um, because in sort of uncanny ways, many of the essays addressed the experience we were all collectively having. Um, and then a book that I'm, I'm particularly fond of uh, preceded that, uh, another collection of essays called The, Wor the Word Pretty, um, I almost said the world pretty, but the word pretty, which came out from Black Ocean in 2018. I remember reading that book, hiding it in my um, academic regalia and reading it during a commencement ceremony at, at, at my university um, and being so um, charmed by it and transported by it and stimulated by it. Um, and at that point, I didn't know Elisa as, as anyone but... Um, an author on the page. She, she writes the on poetry column for the New York times where you may have seen her work. And her work has also appeared in places like Harper's, the New Yorker, the believer, New York times magazine and book review, the New York review of books, London review of books. I could keep listing these places. She's amazingly productive and, um, and just a wonderful critic and essayist and poet. Um, her next book, uh, which is a collection of nonfiction called Any Person is the Only Self, is due out in 2024 from FSG. So, uh, you know, as I was thinking about um, having uh, this conversation, um, I was trying to um, put into, into some kind of words what it is that I admire so much about Elisa as a writer. Um, I, and I think, you know, she's a writer who's like interested in things. She's, she's curious about things. Um, she's interested in the phenomena and the epiphenomena of ordinary lives and, and of extraordinary lives too. But you know, what it, what it's like to be alive and what it's like to think about being alive. Um, she's interested in making familiar things strange as, as in, uh, and, 
an essay from the word pretty in which it's an essay about crying. Um, and she, she, she writes the, the following very simple sentence in that essay. I've never seen most people I know cry. I mean, I read that sentence and I was like, the, how has no, no one ever said this before? It's such a profound uh, observation and such, uh, I mean, as soon as she says it, you think, well, that's true. It's so strange and wonderful. Um, and by the end of that essay, uh, that interest of hers, um, bends around into these kinds of detached and revelatory self, um, appraisals. Um, she, she notes that a good way to stop crying is to look in the mirror. Um, which means, um, if that's true for you as it is for her and as I think is for me, I mean, this is after she's, she's written about the, the kind of, um, narcissism that we probably all have indulged in at some moment in our lives when, while crying, we look in the mirror to see what we look like. Um, that tends to stop us now. Um, which means that we know not how we look while we're crying, but how we look just after we've been crying. Um, and, and I think I take that as a kind of emblematic moment of curiosity about, about the, the just afters of intense experience. Um, and it's brought to poems too, in Elisa's writing. So, you know, some of you may know her as the author of a marvelous sort of recurring feature, which I hope never ends a kind of year end appraisal of the poetry that Elisa has read that year, which is which always contains surprises. She does the hard work of, you know, looking not just to the usual big presses, but to smaller presses, to poets that that um, in many cases I have not heard of before and that I I suddenly want to read. Um, and um, or or you you may know her as the um, I, I I don't know what the right word would be, but the principal author on that. Um, beautiful interactive feature that appeared on the New York Times website on W.H. Auden's poem, Musée de Beaux-Arts. Um, and today we'll have that um, perspective of, of Elisa's in real time, and I'm so happy to do it. So, um, Elisa Gabbert, welcome to Close Readings. Um, how are you feeling today? Oh, wow. well, after that, I feel like I have like butterflies. I don't know. I, don't, I feel like I can't live up to that wonderful <laughs> introduction. That was so kind. Um, but I'm really excited, really excited to get to talk to you again um, for, I don't know if, if listeners would care about this trivia, but we met for the first time in real life at Bread Loaf this summer. And um, for a week, we got to chit chat every single night and it was so fun. What a dream. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. So, um, yeah, I'm just very happy and grateful to be able to talk to you again and to get to talk about um, a poem that, yeah, that means a lot to me. Me too. I mean, I had no idea what you would choose when we, so we talked about it a little bit this summer when we, when we were getting to chit chat um, for a week or so. And, um, you know, of course, at that point, I, I, I knew and had been admiring your work and, you know, the, the writing you do about, I mean, the, the Auden thing, notwithstanding the writing that you do about poetry is mostly about contemporary poetry, sort of reviewing new books and that kind of thing. In part, I guess, just because as, as I know, as well as you do, um, like that's what the market, that's what there is a market for as, as somebody who produces essays about poetry, people want book reviews. Um, 
but of course in this podcast i sort of say like pick a poem any poem <laughs> you know that makes it sound like a card trick um and <laughs> i and i and i and i wasn't sure what you would choose and you know it made sense to me in a way when you chose plath uh, i mean i love sylvia plath this is a poem i care a lot about and so i'm really happy to get to talk about it period um but when i say it made sense it made sense to me sort of getting to know your mind as I have gotten to know it, um, that this poem would interest you. But I, but I wonder if, um, maybe just by way of sort of situating things for our listeners, if you could say something about like the place Sylvia Plath holds in your mind. And, and I, I don't know why, but with Plath in particular, I find myself wanting to ask, like, do you remember how old you were when you first read a poem by Sylvia Plath, or do you remember what that first reading experience was like? And, and if you do, or I guess even if you don't sort of like, has the place she holds in your mind sort of changed over the years? Yes. I, um, I was anticipating this question (laughs) (laughs) as a listener of your podcast. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking, Plath is probably the poet that I have the longest kind of serious relationship with. Um, I do remember when I first read her work and it's like fact checkable because my parents gave me a copy of her collected poems for Christmas one year and they signed it, the inscription with a date. And it was, you know, Merry Christmas, mom and dad, um, 1994. And so I would have been 15. And that may not have been the first time I'd ever encountered a Plath poem. You know, I could have easily seen one in one of my English textbooks in high school. Um, I can't think how else I would have run across one because I I wouldn't have had the internet yet. Or it would have been very early, very early internet days. Um, And yeah, so I'm not sure. 15 seems like a really... poignant and perfect age to (laughs) to encounter this poet. Yeah. Yes. So I was definitely like, you know, like a budding poet. But um, what I can't remember is if I had expressed some interest in this book, like if I'd asked my parents for it or if they just somehow intuited like, Mm -hmm. oh, whatever, you know, teenage girl. Um, They like Plath, right? (laughs) But as it happens, like, because you were um, already interested in poetry, you said, uh, or yes, you yeah, I, said. yeah, right, um, yeah. yeah, I was, I was writing, I was certainly interested in writing poetry. I probably wasn't right. reading <laughs> all that much of it, if I'm honest. Surprisingly or not, that is the usual progression <laughs> of things. I think, right, um, yeah. but yeah, I do remember, like you know, kind of trying to dip my toes in the water. Like I didn't grow up in a town with great bookstores. So, you know, when I went and like browsed books, it was like Barnes and Noble. But I do remember finding, you know, the books that you still see in like the Barnes and Noble poetry section. It was like Sylvia Plath. Um, I know I got an Anne Sexton book right around the same time. I'm not sure which came first. Um, I know I had some Bukowski. Um, I was not overly Mm -hmm. fond of it, but that is what they carried at (laughs) Barnes and Noble. I get it. but yeah, so that, what, what impression did she make on you when you got that book? Do you remember? Yeah, I I really remember um, like doing a lot of poking around and just trying, like trying to understand it. Um, 
it it was actually a little bit difficult for me. Like I do remember particular poems that felt like, oh, I have like a way in here. Like I really remember like Death and Co was one of the ones that yeah. um, I felt like I kind of got at that age. Mm-hmm. But I I know that I spent a lot of time with it. And I know there were a lot of poems that I would just kind of skip because they looked really like long and dense. <laughs> right. right. Um, like in plaster or whatever. I was sort of like maybe, maybe next year. Um, but I definitely did like a lot of looking at the pages and, you huh. know, the, the, t- the titles and like a lot of things about it were just sort of slowly seeping into my consciousness. And the main thing I know is that like this copy has moved around with me my entire life. It's the same book. Right. Um, and it's like, I've just kept going back to it and like getting smarter and wiser over the mm-hmm. years and mm-hmm. learning the things that I need to understand the poems. And so it keeps opening up to me. Yeah. And, you know, I remember, of course, a phase where like, you know, the really kind of famous path poems um, hit me as like, oh, right. Like these are the ones I'm supposed to be reading. Um Including the one cer- we're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. And they certainly made an impression. But I have just felt that like every single time I kind of forget about Plath, don't think about her very much for a few years, and then come back to her, she's like way better than I remembered. I- I've never had the experience where um, I've I felt like, oh, yeah, that's just something I liked to love as a kid. She's kind of overrated. I've never felt like that. I've always felt like richer, better, if anything, underrated. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, part of what I admire uh, in uh, about your writing is that you seem open to to writing about and and discussing the. I, I don't mean to put Plath in this category necessarily, but uh, like the the kind of pleasures of adolescent reading, maybe too. So, like, I know you you write somewhere about the Catcher in the Rye in a way that I find really that I found really like charming and 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 um like meaningful to me as someone who had a very definite Salinger phase myself but Mm -hmm. but I think part of what you're saying and and we could like let's set that to one side part of what you're saying here is that as you revisit Plath it doesn't seem to you like a kind of adolescent thing that you're returning to if anything it seems like you are having a fuller and fuller experience of these poems as yes yes um or also like I've I'm now older than Plath ever got to be um and I think like as I've aged I sort of understood the stages of her career in a way that I couldn't possibly have Mm -hmm. when I first encountered her work Mm -hmm. um so like I remember noticing that there was that juvenilia section section in the back of her collected poems and like being kind of interested in those probably because on some level I was like that's what I write (laughs) juvenilia because I'm a child (laughs) right right um that's so funny (laughs) Nobody thinks they're writing juvenilia when they're writing juvenilia, but you do. You did. Right. 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 Um, Well, I think, you know, maybe I was sort of projecting forward, fantasizing, like, I wonder if my juvenilia will ever be saved or archived. Um, But yeah, I I did have some like kind of (laughs) attraction to those poems Mm -hmm. because like I knew that she wrote them when she was young. Um, Did any of the facts of her biography 
seem meaningful to you? Do you, I mean, because it's I a very, it's a um, sort of famous life too, you know? Yeah. I didn't know very much about her. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. that I spent a lot of time at that age reading even just like the sort of, you know, front and back matter in that book. Right. Um, I, I never read yeah. any biography biographies of her at that age. I knew that she had committed suicide because that's very mm-hmm. inescapable knowledge. Do you um, remember if you'd read The Bell Jar? Which is her novel for people who don't know it. And it's right. sort of an autobiographical I, novel that that she, you know, that was published just before she died, pseudonymously and then in her own name only posthumously. Yeah. Sorry, go on. I definitely got it from the library. Like I had mm-hmm. every intention and aspiration to read it. And I had formed like a false memory that I did read it. But I, mm-hmm. I and then like maybe five, six years ago, I intended to reread it. <laughs> And I realized, like, I don't think I ever read this. Like, I was either lying to myself, kidding myself, or just wrong. Like, I didn't remember anything about it. It was nothing. It was like nothing like what I remembered. And to such a degree, I'm like, there's no way I read this. That's so (laughs) fascinating. Because I I I reread Catcher in the Rye recently too, and I remembered Uh like everything about that. Yeah, Um, and nothing about the Bell Jar. So I don't know why I thought that I had read it. But also, I loved the bell jar as an adult. Like that also was like way better than I was expecting it to be. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you, listeners, if you've avoided it or have just not had the experience, the bell jar holds up. Um, it's you so should read good. the bell jar. It's, it's so, so good. good. It's my line about it, which I, I I truly believe is that it's funny in a way that people don't know. It's until, so funny. Yeah, it's so it's, funny, it and will it's make it's metafiction. Yeah. It's like it is. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not really fair to call it like autofiction. Um, it's more just like autobiographical kind of Ramana Clef, but like it's totally yeah. meta. It's so meta. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like it really is kind of a precursor, predecessor to a lot of the kind of right. autofiction y poets' novels that yeah. are coming out oh, in the 21st yeah. century. Right. This is this whole other subject, but I have this kind of, I mean, but of course I do. So I have to interrogate this belief and ask myself whether it's legitimate or it's just because it's what I see. And, you know, it's like that if all you have is a hammer kind of problem, everything <laughs> looks like a nail, you know, I think like, oh, what autofiction is, it's, is the poet's novel or it's like a, it's yes. a, it's the lyric novel. Um, yes. but we can talk about that some other time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have, I have, I have one other sort of general or sort of context setting question for you, Elisa, which, um, I hadn't actually planned to ask, but as we've been talking, it has, um, it has occurred to me, which is that, you know, you spend so much of your writing life, um, or you like your, your work as a kind of practicing literary critic, thinking about contemporary poetry, reading contemporary poetry, reading, as I said, really widely in contemporary poetry. Um, Do you have a feeling about not just what Plath sort of means to you, but of something like what the, I mean, I don't mean this as a question about like, well, what has Plath's influence been necessarily? Because that's um, a kind of, literary historical question or a biographical question about a whole bunch of other poets but i mean more in a sense of like how contemporary does plath feel to you as a poet i mean are poet are is your reading of the the landscape of the you know we all read uh, i mean even you right are reading only a sliver of what's out there globally obviously but in the poetry that you're most familiar with does does Plath, does a 
a Plath-like poetics still feel pretty present to you? And do you mind thinking about that out loud for a minute or two? Yeah, it's it's present, but um, it's present, but still rare. I I think that Plath mm-hmm. has such sort of a particular signature, and I think it's probably because it really is just you know sort of a very finite set of poems that she's most known mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tend to be the and, ones produced at the end of her life, right? Yeah, I mean, I think with good reason because they are mm. um, just so much more earth shaking than Mm -hmm. a lot of her early work. Um, And that, that kind of plathy signature, like every now and then I'm like, Ooh, like this person is like Mm -hmm. very consciously, very consciously trying to kind of, you know, wear their plath influence um, quite openly. And like, that's happened when I've been reading like an A.E. Stallings poem, for example. I just remembered um, Megan Fernandez has a poem in her most recent book that is like, you know, is very, very, very plathy. Um, but it was just like that one poem, you know, it's like mm-hmm. somebody like, ha- oh, it's like almost someone has to sit down and <laughs> consciously um, mm-hmm. contend with the spirit to do it. So what, what I, like, is, I, I is, do run yeah, across them. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just I do see them, but I I don't feel like it's pervasive. I don't feel like I'm I'm reading poems all the time that feel like they have that plath influence. I want to ask about you, you this because well, yeah, sure, and and actually, uh, yeah, yeah, I I um I th- and I think the examples you've cited resonate with me too. Um, but I I I you know, d- depending on who you're talking to, what it would even mean for something to be plath like you know people have different plaths in mind right so you know one thing people might want to sort of think of her as or the kind of category that they might want to put her in is of the kind of confessional poet um it's a it's a i mean this gets into the you know stuff i've written about in my in my more kind of academic writing um and and so that's a that's a, a kind of a funny category, and I think people sometimes misunderstand what that category is actually designating. I think it's a meaningful category, but it's a misunderstood one in some ways. Ooh, we should pick yeah. this back up because I have like continuously felt like I don't truly understand what the category means. Like, there's very well, different poets who get shoved into for sh- it. For sure. Um, you know, so for people who don't know, the the poets, the kind of first generation of poets that are most typically grouped under that um, umbrella are people like um, Robert Lowell and um, Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton and John Berryman. Um, these are poets of different, slightly different generations, you know. So very famously, Robert Lowell taught a poetry workshop at Boston University two of the students in that workshop were Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. So there are all these sort of interesting webs of affiliation um, or another poet who's not as well remembered, but was crucial to the early days of that movement was W.D. Snodgrass, who had also been Lowell student, um, but at the Iowa Writers' Workshop at a slightly earlier moment. What do these poets have in common? Uh, You know, I, I think certain things, but, but you know, they're writing about their lives. That's the easiest thing to say, or the poems seem rooted in autobiography in some way. 
But actually, I think that the thing that is um, compelling about the group is that each of the poets differently, I think, has a way of making the 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 autobiography that they're writing seem like it's not an autobiography at all, but like they're writing about someone else. Um, like there's something mm-hmm. very estranged about the form of self-regard that conf- that those confessional poets, the, the, those poets, you know, that we call confessional. So it doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like confession to me. Right. Um, it's like it, the, it, the label is sort of distracting. Yeah. I mean, you see it in a poet like, you know, Berryman who, you know, in the dream songs, he sort of, he, he, would always claim it. These poems aren't, this isn't me. This is Henry and Henry's sleeping, you know, he's dreaming. Plath has her own way of doing that kind of a strip. Like, and we'll talk about it in a minute when we, especially yeah. when we listen to her voice and so on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess what I wanted to know from you before you tricked me into sharing my own thoughts here Lisa, <laughs> was um, when you talk about what like, Oh, sometimes I get the Plath signature you know, I get it for maybe a poem and say, Meg, Meg, you know, Megan Fernandez's book or something. Um, w- for people who don't have your ear or know what you mean, like, what are the, what is the Plath signature? Maybe, or maybe that's too hard a question. Oh, wow. No, that, no I, I like it. That's, that yeah. is a very hard question. Like, how, to, would you, how would, how would you know? <laughs> to answer like, on the what, spot. What, what, yeah, 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 I know. Right. <clears throat> well, but it's funny though. It is, it's like, it does have to be, it's, it's sort of like diagnosing lupus or whatever. You need like a certain number <laughs> of symptoms. They all have to like yeah, yeah, yeah. cluster. I can't just be one. If so you have five think... of the following 15 features, you might yeah, be a path poem. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. So like, I think, you know, just the sort of like formal look and shape of the poem makes a difference. Right. So like, right. you know, she wrote in tercets a lot. So if somebody yep. has, is, I mean, this poem, like if somebody's writing in tercets with sort of like um, and a regular line length, some short lines, some long lines that already yeah. feels like, all right, okay, that's one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and then, yeah, there's, there's like an intensity and a theatricality. Yes. Um, but then like, there's other things that just, I just always feel like there's a winkingness. Like there's certain words that feel like plath words, just like very specific <laughs> Plath words, and so it's like if like if you use the word brute, um, uh-huh. you know that's just the first one that comes to mind. But there's other ones, you know. There's yeah, other yeah. ones like what like confetti. I don't know. There's just there's certain words <laughs> that are like that's great. <laughs> it's like so um, that I so specifically associate with plath. If you're doing yeah. the other plath things, and then you also use one of those words, I'm like, okay, uh-huh. you're sending me like strong messages. Yeah. Um, And yeah, it's like a really like a tendency to make a really strong kind of like I statement, for example, Um, something really kind of, now I feel like I'm just talking about (laughs) Lady Lazarus without talking about Lady Lazarus. Well, we should, maybe we should actually talk about (laughs) Lady Lazarus. Yeah. 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 Um, But yeah, that, those are, those are some of the things. That, that helps. That. And I mean, I knew I would get an interesting answer from you. And, and in part because you didn't say like, oh, if somebody's writing about their their experience of depression or something, right? That's not, oh, yeah, that wasn't one of the hallmarks. You know what I mean? That's like, more like all poetry. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I think there is this real sort of like hypercharged intensity, but but it's um, it's it, it can feel so tightly controlled too, you know? Yes. Um, um, that's sort of gem-like or something. Um, oh, okay. yeah. I think, 
Oh yeah. C- control. We should come back to because, um, yeah. I just, I, I just think it's one of the most interesting kind of like levers in Plath's work. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So, so let's, um, let's, we, we, there is a, there's a recording, a series of very famous recordings. I mean, famous because, well, you'll know why once you hear them, they're, they're kind of hypnotic, um, th- that Plath made very near the end of her life, um, of Lady Lazarus. We'll listen to that and, and talk about it. You know, um, there, th- I'll provide a link for people who would like to look at the poem as they listen. Um, you'll notice that it, in one, I think just in one place, the the performance she the reading she gives here includes a line that isn't in the um, published poem. So so listen for that um, because it's an interest. It's a really interesting moment and a um, you know as the kids say problematic moment too. Maybe so. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in Plath. Um, and um, uh, the the yeah the the poem um, you know was published. Um, posthumously in in her book Ariel, um, which has uh, which her estranged um, uh, husband Ted Hughes um, saw through to publication after she died, and then has been reissued by you know more recently um, under the supervision of her daughter Frida Hughes um, in a quote unquote restored edition. So the um, the, po- the poems had a really interesting life um but let's 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 listen to sylvia plath read and and then we'll talk about it here she is lady lazarus i have done it again one year in every ten i manage it a sort of walking miracle my skin bright as a nazi lampshade my right foot a paperweight my face a featureless fine jew linen Peel off the napkin, O my enemy. Do I terrify? Yes, yes, Herr Professor, it is I. Can you deny the nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth? The sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh the grave cave ate will be at home on me, and I a smiling woman. I am only thirty, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them unwrap me hand and foot. The big strip tease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone. I may be Japanese. Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened, I was ten. It was an accident. The second time I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused shout, a miracle that knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. 
and there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. So, so, Herr Doctor, so, Herr Enemy. I am your opus. I am your valuable. The pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash, ash, you poke and stir, flesh, bone. There is nothing there, a cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Hear God, hear Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. The last line always makes the the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Uh, Incendiary. Um, yeah, quite literally. Um, Elisa, um, I, so like another version of the what did it feel like to first read Plath? Do you remember what it felt like the first time you heard her voice? Or um, what what do you find yourself thinking about and experiencing as you listen to a recording of Plath reading the poem? Yes, I I didn't hear these BBC recordings until um, until I was in my thirties. So I had you know I had already had you know fifteen twenty year <laughs> relationship right. with Plath that was like in a voice in my head. I don't know where it came from. I guess it was just my <laughs> my mental reading voice. Um, I I don't know that I like, you know, consciously imagined what she might sound like at all. But I do know that I, I didn't think she would sound like that. Mm. And yeah, I, I heard that these recordings existed. I listened to them and it's like, it, I mean, it just totally changed my conception of her, I feel. Um, right. And that, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that just like, oh, there's always like more depth to a person um who's who's sort of like a pop icon like (laughs) they get they get very flattened um and yeah yeah i um there's there's so much that's fascinating about it i mean of course like we can't we can't not mention this this weird like fake mid-atlantic accent she developed (laughs) to try to like fit in when she moved to england but it's i mean what's so like riveting to me is like how in control she is of the the theatrical performance. Um, right. Right. And I mean, it's just, it just feels like, you know, like a monologue delivered by a great actress. There's no timidity at all. Yeah. yeah. And do you think um, that's, that's lovely. Um I mean, I find that when I've taught Plath, and it's been a little while since I've done so, but when I've taught Plath to students and I play, you know, some of these recordings, whether it's of this poem or of Daddy, there's a, you know, a similar sounding kind of performance. Um, students are shocked and many of them don't like it. You know, they they find <laughs> it off-putting or it's not even, you know, even or especially if they liked the poem on the page first it's not what they expected to hear um <laughs> and i i guess i want to like press a little bit on you know you said i don't know what i expected but it wasn't this do and then at the end you said 
well, there's no timidity here. Do you think you expected timidity, maybe? I mean, even if only erroneously, obviously. Um. Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of past poems, even the aerial poems, are very quiet. And, Mm -hmm. like, if you're kind of reading them all together, like, I can imagine reading this in sort of a very quiet, like, I've done it again, one year and every 10, I manage it, like, sort of a serious Mm -hmm. voice Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And it very much changes the poem. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think... I think Plath is leaning into something that is really important. This poem and daddy to me are basically like sister poems. Um, (laughs) There are ways that they, like I confuse them sometimes at points. And I, I actually, I might argue that Plath kind of confused them (laughs) at points. That's interesting. Okay. Um, Like, well, I mean, like, so like they both have the word, Brute, like the, yeah. the 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 whole Nazi lampshade thing. It's like, wait, who's yeah. <laughs> who's the figure in this poem? Is it Lazarus or not? Like, <laughs> right. and you and and in that right. recording, you know, there's also like it's, it's. She was trying to throw a lot of metaphors in, and you know, the the poem can withstand that. I am glad she cut the Japanese line. Right. Um, yeah. But like, both of those poems to me are just at the far, far end of the scale of like, as just contemptuous as she allowed her tone to get. And it's, but it's very much hidden behind a theatrical persona. I think like there's, there's no, there's no way to actually make this or daddy line up truly with her autobiography. Like clearly she was using real life, um, you know, experience and feelings to like feed the poem, but it's, it's just, it's this persona that's completely like larger than life and over the top. Yeah. Yeah. A kind of, um, I love what you say about how, you know, the poems, the aerial poems, um, can sound, might seem to be kind of quiet or that there is maybe we could just say it that way like there is maybe you did say it this way there is something quiet about them even if that's not exactly how she reads them and you know part of for for me part of the um the kind of mythology of these poems she she gave you know she she read the poems for the bbc she also prepared a, a sort of like series of introductions for the poems which um i'm sure you know elisa but maybe mm-hmm. our listeners don't and one thing she said about all of the poems, which I can read to you, um, so about poems that included Lady Lazarus, she said, these new poems of mine have one thing in common. They were all written at about four in the morning, then still <laughs> blue, almost eternal hour before cock crow, before the baby's cry, before the glassy music of the milkman settling his bottles. If they have anything else in common, perhaps it is that they are written for the ear, not the eye. They are poems written out loud. Um, and that, you know, that 4 a.m. kind of just before, yeah, I, I don't know, like what is implied by 4 a.m.? It's fascinating and it yeah. and it just, it attaches itself to the poems for me. Yeah, somewhere um, she she wrote that she felt like she was writing from a train tunnel or God's intestine. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and she was, and she was in the middle of this. Well, first of all, of like a of a really difficult period of life. Um, in that, like, you know, her husband had left. She had these two small children. She was alone and um, and overwhelmed. And but also, it's this period of like remarkable and incandescent kind of productivity and creativity. She's writing all of these poems. I mean, I once like counted it up and it's like, she was writing a poem a day, sometimes more than one a day. And they're not, I mean, they're all like many of them anywhere. These poems that she, that I think will be remembered for as, you know, many, many decades. I don't know what I can say beyond that. So yeah, um, there's something remarkable about the the kind of something sort of heroic about the the kind of act of creativity, even as in that little yeah. image she gives us, it's like very kind of quiet and domestic and modest, you know, it's a funny kind of paradox in that, I think. Um, yes. Let's talk about the opening of the poem. Yeah. Maybe the, the first line, even the title in the first line. So the poem, you know, she, she gives us the, t- you know, I find that that's an interesting thing, you know, often, maybe not always, some poems do it in more pronounced ways than others. There's a kind of like, you know, to read the first line, you have to read it in relation to the title or something like that. But so if Lady Lazarus and then the first line, one line, a complete sentence, I have done it again. Um, what does that sort of tell you about who's speaking and what kind of speech this is you're hearing, like right from the first line? Yeah, I... Um... Yeah, again, I'm like trying to go back and try to remember like how I read it as a kid, Mm -hmm. because I don't think I really knew very much about the sort of Lazarus myth. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I wasn't, you know, like raised, I didn't go to Bible school or whatever. Um, It it was just very much sort of, uh, I think I vaguely sort of know what that is. Um, Mm -hmm. So I definitely had to So for other people who didn't go to Bible school, people, Lazarus... Risen from the dead. Good. Right. So yeah, it was one of, I think, Jesus's last miracles, um, you know, kind of a, like a foreshadowing of his own Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, resurrection. This, this figure had been dead, I think, for three days. He goes, rolls the rock off the tomb, pulls him out, unwraps him. So you see that imagery here and the... um, peel off the napkin, which I, I, I find that very, like, <laughs> there's such a cruel irony and like such a mean irony in this poem. Um, but yeah, sure. she's basically, she's basically like, all right, I'm going to use Lazarus, Lazarus um, to like say something that I want to say, which is the kind of strange magic of the persona poem, right? Like you can yeah. hide behind, you know, a historical figure or like if you're Louise Gluck, maybe a flower. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and there's kind of like plausible deniability. Like nobody can ever quite pinpoint what's what's the poet and um, what is the persona or the historical figure or the mythical figure, what have you. Right. And so, right. um Clearly, that's what she's doing. But but another thing I want to talk about around beginnings, if you'll Good. allow me to just ramble a little. Um, I love how this poem seems to begin more than once. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever felt like this? Like, there's a f- yeah. at least two other parts where 
it kind of seems to me like, oh, that could easily be the beginning. Um, but the, the really strong one to me is dying as an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. Like I could easily uh-huh. see that being the beginning of the poem. Right. Um, there's just something so, you know, it's the opposite of final. It's anti-final. It's like, this is where we start. Um, uh-huh. And I, I have done it again has that feeling too. Um, right. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. I don't, I don't want to interrupt your rambling, but I, I mean, I have thoughts. Did you have more that you wanted to say about this? Or no, let's, other pa- let's pause that, before I... Let's pause? Um, okay. Let's pause before, like, you, you, you interrupt me so I don't ramble for 10 minutes. No, I mean, it's good. People don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from you. But um, the... Um, yeah, I mean, if, if if the kind of magic of the poem, you know, is, is or the kind of miracle of the poem is is the sort of refusal of death, you know, it seems like the it would make sense in a way that the um, that the technique that accomplishes that is this like a refusal of ending is is a kind of constant reprisal of beginning. I, I like that idea, and right, I also right. I, I I like the idea of um, um, you know, it's like repetition is asserted in the first line before we even know what, I mean, except in as much as it's implied by the title, mm-hmm. right? If you just had the first line, you wouldn't know what the it was in reference to. It, um, And it's, it's not even necessary. I mean, is the it dying or is the it being reborn or is it like the whole enchilada as it were of like dying and being reborn um so that's interesting to me i i've also i mean you've talked a couple of times and it's laced throughout the poem so it's a it seems like a particularly apt place to do it now i'm rambling for a minute so you please cut me off but um the um you've talked about the theatricality of the poem right Mm -hmm. and there's something about like what constitutes theatricality as such that it that is sort of dependent on or premised on replicability you know if you think about stage acting in particular it's like the 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 performance what makes the performance the performance is that it 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 um is um it happens again you know we're here all week you know it's <laughs> it happens every night you know and and it happens every night as though for the first time, right? That that's kind of the trick of it, which is in a way kind of like a resurrection. You know, these characters in a play or something, you know, they they sort of exist for the duration of the play. And then you might think naively like, well, now they're dead. But you come back the next night and they've, there they are again, you know, back from the dead. Um, mm-hmm. There, there are there are theories of, uh, or you know, people who work in the in the field of performance studies. That, you know, I'm thinking of a of a scholar called Richard Schechner, um, and a t- and a teacher of mine, um, a former teacher of mine, Joe Roach, who who introduced me to this idea that you know what performance means is like never for the first time. Performance is always repetition with a difference. That, that mm. that's you know even if it's opening night it's as though the thing has been performed before and what you're seeing is a kind of repetition of something that's happened before. Um, but, and every time it's different. So that I've done it again, what it like announces to me is like, we're in the realm of performance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So that's some of what I'm thinking about there. Um, but then almost immediately, Elisa, we get into this, this language of, um, the Nazi lampshade and so on, 
one year in every ten, I manage it a sort of walking miracle. My skin bright as a Nazi lampshade. My right foot a paperweight, my face a featureless fine Jew linen. I should say mm-hmm. that these are some of the lines and gestures that Plath has that make certain readers just like not want to have anything to do with her. And one can understand right. like why. The, I mean, I made the joke earlier about like problematic Plath, but we should take it seriously. Like um, this is some of the hardest stuff in the poem. I don't mean hard in the like, what is she talking about? But hard sort of to know right. how you feel about it. Um, do you want to talk about these images or, or this kind of language or what she's doing with it that's interesting to you? I do. I think, I mean, so that's another you know way that this is so similar to Daddy. They are both so... Right over the top and, you know, these metaphors that they're reaching for, um, because, you know, regardless of the persona, the pose, you can't help but think like, oh, the poet is comparing herself to mm-hmm. a persecuted Jew in a I should say Plath, camp. Plath was not Jewish. Not, though in- not Jewish. Yeah. Um, so it's understandable, um, I think. And this one thing I think is worth pointing out to just avoid too much presentism. I think, you know, today's readers might think like, oh, this is so offensive to the, to the contemporary reader. Mm-hmm. Like, how did she get away with it? I just want to be really clear that this was considered very offensive at the time. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah i mean and these you know these poems well, I mean, were the not whole... like they were not published until after her death and they were difficult to have to be published um you know she wasn't she wasn't famous yet sorry you were gonna say something about that oh no well i was just gonna say that i mean if anything you could imagine well the holocaust was a more recent memory yes. in 1962 and 1963 then then of course it is even for us i mean of course yes we've developed different ways of of understanding and talking about you know the sort of meaning of that um um historical event or that that sort of period in our history and and ways of thinking about things like appropriation of um sort of identities and um, identities that have been, you know, victimized historically um, and and to do so, you know, from the position of whiteness and um, uh, security and, you know, certain kinds of um, privilege, a word that, you know, we'd use that, you know, wouldn't have been used in the same way in her time. But nevertheless, like there it is. So she's doing some version of that, right? Like the idea is yeah. that, She's comparing herself to this, to sort of, she's occupying this position, even if only theatrically or something. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that that's happening and readers have always kind of mm-hmm. been like shocked and appalled by it. So um, what I, what I think we should resist doing is just sort of like saying, oh, this is shocking. This is offensive as though that's sort of like an end point. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm much more interested in kind of, moving past that because I think, you know, clearly, even though I do think um, to some extent Plath was like sort of out of her mind during this period of time, um, Mm -hmm. certainly 
there's an argument that her, like her judgment was questionable, right? Regardless, like I think the shock value is intentional. Like she's she's trying to shock the reader, um, right. and you can kind of you can hear that in her voice when she reads it, and um, you it's know, a sort I of in your face kind of performance, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I say this sort of like I think neutrally and just describing what's happening. I mean, obviously, I like this poem, but. Um, you know, it's it's not really a question of whether like I approve of that move or would like recommend right. it. Um, it's more, you know, I I I think that she's like channeling. Um, she's just channeling rage, mm-hmm. and these were pre- preoccupations for Plath like throughout her life. I know that you know she wrote in her journals a lot about um, like the atomic bombs, for example. Um, and, you know, right or wrong, she just in this moment felt like, oh, these, these, these atrocities that have preoccupied me are available to me (laughs) while I'm, while I'm, while I'm writing about, um, you know, sort of my own, my own rage. Um, so I, I think, I think I'm, I'm just... I, I make allowances for like being comfortable with being offended and seeing like what what might come from that. Yeah, no, aesthetically, I, I think that's um, that's an that's an inviting way to take the poem on, um, which is not to ignore those things or but but maybe to set aside the question of what we how it makes us feel about the the choices made or the, um, the person who is, who was Sylvia Plath, but to look at the poem she's made here and to think about what it's doing. I liked what you said about those moments, especially, you know, in a way being put so upfront in the poem at the, at the top of it are meant to shock a listener. Um, and the poem seems, you know, just sort of looking a little more, um, broadly over its kind of opening movements, I think, you know, again, maybe even before I like, I really liked what you said earlier about how it seems to have a second opening maybe at the dying is an art um, line. So if we think of the sort of section of the poem between I have done it again and, you know, up to, but just before dying is an art. So the, the last line then would be and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls, the sort of that section of tercets. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, sorry, I keep digressing, but for people who aren't looking, Elisa's referred to the to Plath's um, sort of tendency to write in tercets. A terset is just a three line stanza. Hers tend to be pretty short lines, and they rhyme often, mm-hmm. but kind of irregularly. And the lengths of the lines are somewhat irregular too. Um, there's other kinds of shock or things that are kind of allied with shock in my mind happening in that opening movement of the poem, like the whole striptease kind of mm-hmm. section of the poem, gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands by knee, you know, the big striptease she calls it. Right. So, um, you know, um, to, to talk about, um, I mean, if, if, if the, if the line sort of comparing herself, you know, to a victim of the Holocaust are meant to shock, um, what impression or what effect do you think the um, gentle the the um, gentlemen ladies these are my hands my knees um, lines are meant to do to the reader what are what are those meant to do or to the listener mm-hmm. yeah I I find 
I find there to be like a fascinating, just thick, thick irony there. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about, you know, the Lazarus myth or story or whatever you want to call it, um, which, you know, it's funny. I was just flipping like randomly through her journals <laughs> a couple of days ago. And I, yeah. I swear I just opened to a page where, you know, it was from like the early fifties, but she mentioned Lazarus and she's just like, Oh, like, I don't know why that story like holds such fascination for me. So it was yeah. another thing that she clearly like thought about a lot in her life. Um, but it's, it's like, she's very consciously cheapening this, you know, <laughs> Like, oh yeah, good. This, good. this like serious biblical um, figure, like you che- know, making cheapening. it sound cheap, yeah. like like a, yeah. a striptease, the circus. You know, there's right, um, right. Am because, I imagining um, that there's popcorn? No, to, I think the, there's peanut. There's popcorn. a peanut crunching peanuts. crowd. Yeah, yes, right. Peanuts. So so um, no, I like that because right, we it, it, it's a it's a it's a really fine distinction to be making because you could imagine a poem in which, like the poet is sort of um playing at the language of taking her clothes off for you to look at. And that doesn't really settle what the tone of that is. I mean, that could be a really like erotically charged and hot moment. It could be, <laughs> you know, a kind of deeply erotic kind of moment. And here, you know, the tone of it seems to be to like, tawdry and cheap or something you know sort yeah. of intentionally so yeah um which which is nice yeah um you know i i i was also you know i i don't recall offhand the moment I, um i mean i don't remember the context so this may not be right or, or um of the moment that you talked about in her journals um in which she talks about lazarus um but you know, it, it, I guess it. I guess it bears saying that you know, Plath had attempted suicide herself. Bef- you know, at an earlier moment in her life, it's it's the the moment that's sort of fictionalized in the Bell Jar, um, and that experience involved her sort of falling asleep and 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 sort of in a in a kind of crypt like space or a tomb like space and being woken up and, and as it were kind of raised from the dead, I can imagine why in very sort of literal ways, the Lazarus myth would have, you know, presented itself to her even, even before um, this moment, very near the end of her life, you know, in the early Mm sixties. I also, yeah. Oh, go on, please. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it's, I mean, um, Elizabeth Hardwick has this great essay about Sylvia Plath where she says, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's basically impossible not to think about Plath's biography when you're reading her poems, which yeah. I find to be true. And it was partly that we just, we know a lot about her. Um, but it's just, it's just really in there. It's just really interwoven. Um, and so with this poem in particular, it's, it's funny. Like I'm always kind of trying to map <laughs> even like, I think it's impossible. Like I'm always trying to map the sort of like, I've done it again. The first time I was 10 to something and mm-hmm. like Platt's real life. What happened when like, she I, was 10? Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't 
I don't, I know quite a bit about her life. I don't think that she attempted suicide when she was 10. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also mm-hmm. like, there's also that, again, the confusion between this and daddy, I believe um, mm-hmm. there's a line in daddy where she says like, you died when I was 10 or something like that. Yeah. That's I was like, going to say her not, father died. Yeah. Right. But I think that she was eight at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's already like this kind of second mythology that these poems are mm-hmm. a part of um, that's, that's mm-hmm. different from her real life. And I find that to be just sort of an interesting connection, but yeah, I think, well, you know, well, she, 10, 10 is a more mythologizing number than eight. Exactly. And it also, it also rhymes with again, you know? So. Yes. It's perfect. Right. So that, yeah. that is where like the formal control overtakes biography. And, right. you know, she did the, the, the time that she committed suicide or sorry, she um, attempted to commit suicide not successfully she was 20 and then she died Mm -hmm. by suicide when she was 30 and so of course Mm there's that like perfect symmetry if she Mm -hmm. if she rounds up to 10 um Mm -hmm. but i was gonna say also like i think similar to the striptease is that line the grave cave Mm. as you mentioned she she overdosed on sleeping pills when she was 20 and then hid in her mother's cross face in the basement and she went so far as to i believe like move like a pile of logs and then like hide behind that so it's it's really just sort of incredible that she was found she was there for i think like 48 hours or more um right in this there are like newspaper articles people searching for her right, yes you know. um and then they but they're searching out you know in the woods they're not cuz they <laughs> um because she was sort of so hidden and so to reference that um like obliquely as like you know, the grave cave, like, which of course, you know, Lazarus is in a cave, mm-hmm. Jesus cave, but also she was, she almost died in this cave. Like, I just think there's something um, like shockingly humorous about that little kind of two word rhyme grave cave that like, mm-hmm. it's just like how, that she somehow was able to assume this mindset where she could make a joke out of her own near death, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And that kind of tells you how, um, just how removed, I guess, the voice of this poem is from from just sort of the voice of a normal yeah, person right, talking about right. their own life. You know what I mean? Right. Like a confession. A normal life. Right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, sort of with that in mind, I want to bring us um, to the um, to the lines that you've um, pointed um, to as a kind of second beginning, um, of the poem. I I mean, and I should, I should just say like, feel free, even if we've moved along, if you want to bring us back somewhere, please, please just do it. But, um, the, the, so I'm about to, I'll read six lines. Um, the, the first line is one word long. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it. So it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. Um, So, you know, the the line dying and then, you know, what follows it is an art like everything else. And then four lines in a row that start with the first person pronoun I. um, And that are doing really interesting things with sound. 
to um, what, what are you noticing it, it, at mm-hmm. this moment? I mean, you said earlier, it sounds like another beginning. I mean, if it's interesting, you just say more about like what that means, like how does it sound like a beginning or what makes it sound that way? Or just like, what is the, the kind of force and effect of this repetition of the first person pronoun at that, at that place? Um, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in those lines and I want, and I'm curious about what you think of them, Elisa. I'm really interested in these lines too. And like why certain sounds, certain lines sound like beginnings and others don't, um, you know, apart from just like being enjammed or, um, or what have you, like it's, it's one of those mysterious intuitive things, which, um, like as a poet, I don't always understand, but it's just like, you know, some poems, some lines um, sound like first lines and others don't. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm like, I'm like just staring at the poem right now. <laughs> what are, it's so yeah, interesting. I know we all are. Yeah, it's so interesting too, because there's like, you know, one of those quite long lines for the poem and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. And then maybe the longest line in the whole poem. It's it's up there anyway. And then yeah. Dying. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that there's something about that. Um it's like the breath being sucked in or something. Or yeah, that that pause and then dying. It's like Mm -hmm. it's like when an actress kind of stops and (laughs) Mm -hmm. like takes a breath and gathers her composure again to okay, now let me start over. Um, Mm. that's sort of what it feels like, like, oh, I've been, I've been wrapped up in this sort of anecdote almost like about the second time. And now let's return to, but also everything, (laughs) generalizations, (laughs) everything about that first sentence, that generalization is weird. Like dying is an art is surprising, but then it's also surprising to say like everything else, like, right. Like what? Did everyone know that everything else was an art? I mean, it's surprising enough to say that dying is an art, you know, uh, because, yeah. you know, well, just for the obvious reason, you'd think, well, it's, it's a thing you don't ex- accept. I, I suppose in the case of suicide, it's not a thing that you, you know, intend to do. It's a thing that happens to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I is do the think end generalizations of make yeah. make good openings actually like that yeah there's that um yeah that's the, nice. the autumn poem begins with the generalization yeah. actually right about um, suffering they were never wrong the yeah. Old masters. <laughs> yeah right. right yeah um but uh, i also thought about that like everything else for a while and, and yeah. that feels very like um that's very like a plath worldview. Like, you know, she, she loved food. She like, right. she just like loved life yeah. oddly for um, somebody yeah. who was so kind of macabre. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, yeah, I also think you, of her thinking of everything as an art. Well, she's also like a, a kind of a high achiever, right? So mm-hmm. I do it exceptionally well, mm-hmm. you know, sounds like a, a woman who did very well at Smith College, you know, like, yes, like she did, pet. right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but then also the, the sort of progression of the lines after that, I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. The, each, the, like, there's, it's just surprise after surprise. So it feels like, like, I don't know. It feels to me like, yeah. that feels like a very, I don't know if it's American actually, or if I'm just saying that because I'm American. Um, or is it, do the English say that in the same way? So it feels like hell. What does it mean? Like, could, can we, it's a strange phrase. And I'm it just imagining strange. someone who didn't know English 
very well and who would misunderstand maybe what it means to say something feels like hell right like um or maybe not yeah, i don't know well, like what is that what's that what's sort of in that phrase for you and then even weirder so it feels real like it is real isn't it but you know <laughs> anyway say, uh-huh. say, say, say more yeah 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 i um yeah i love how many ways you can read i do it so it feels like hell mm-hmm. um like you can read it as like you know, it hurts like hell. It feels like hell. The feeling, right. <laughs> the feeling yeah. is a lot like that kind of like, like hell right. is just an intensifier. Right. Um, yeah. Good. Like yeah. you're, you're doing it for the pain or for the feeling. Uh-huh. Um, but that also sort of introduces this kind of like image of hellfire. Yeah. Um, it feels like hell. Yeah. It's, but it's that, also, yeah. It's so, I don't know, every time she does these sort of like perfect, neat little masculine rhymes, especially end yeah. rhymes like that, it just feels like the humor gets mean, you know? I feel like she's like taunting me as the reader, like, is this what you want? <laughs> like, oh, that's so great. <laughs> well, also, you know? okay, so I, I have to do, I have to do the, the pedantic thing of explaining for a minute what a masculine rhyme is. So, so you know, you know, a rhyme is like the, the end sound being the same as the, as the other, uh, as the previous one. Um, there is this tradition of referring to, to, um, rhyming sounds that, that, um, are accented syllables in English as being a masculine rhyme and a rhyming sound. So like, um, a feminine rhyme would be something like, um, raining and complaining, Right, that mm-hmm. that because because of that final unaccented syllable of the ing, but uh, um, you know, uh, well, hell is a masculine rhyme, and of course, you know, a thing that we haven't really talked about yet in this poem, and I don't know, I mean, this is a kind of funny punning segue into it, are like the gendered politics of the poem, right? which are are present in the title. She's not Lazarus. She's Lady Lazarus. Almost like it makes me think of those like, uh, <laughs> you know, like um, the college basketball team sort of thing of like the oh. lady volunteers <laughs> of the University of Tennessee. It's like a really weird kind of thing. I mean, yeah. it feels very dated to me in a way, but um, yeah. So she's Lady Lazarus. And then, of course, in the whole like sort of stripped. But also a thing. little bit like Lady Macbeth or something. Like, oh, good. Like, That's better. Like a, yeah, yeah. Like, a, like a monologue. Yes, um, good. I, Lady Macbeth is a great, is a great. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect note. So, but, but of course, also in the striptease, it's, it's highly, I mean, even though it's gentlemen ladies, you know, look at me, it's a striptease. She's the sort of woman who wants you to look at her you know, mm-hmm. who has, who, who's sort of encouraging this kind of leering gaze, this kind of, um, you know, rubbernecking kind of, um, fascination that we should have with her that feels totally gendered to me. But, but, and, and that comes back for sure at the end of the poem, right? That, um, but before we get there, I mean, even here, what you were saying a moment ago, Elisa, is like these moments of these rhymes that are like insistent and masculine rhymes. And even if she doesn't care or have some idea about those labels for rhymes, it makes sense that we call them that because they're kind of like punchy and dumb, you know, <laughs> in, the way, in the way men are. Um, 
that that she's sort of occupying that position and i mean it's like there's this whole kind of play of like victimization in plath's poems but she also victimizes mm-hmm. the reader i think you're saying yeah. right like <laughs> yeah. She, yeah yeah don't you feel like she's beating us totally. up a little bit yeah um yeah i think that about a... daddy too you know oh yeah yeah you do it's, not do um... you do not do you know it's She's oh, she's God. making fun of you, you know, yes. as a reader. Yeah. Yes, and like, so and I so I think this this poem also like obviously we'll we'll get there in the end, but there's this real like sense of triumph, um, right. which again is not in it's not in the biblical story as much. Like I don't feel like Lazarus goes around like gloating <laughs> the way mm. that like the lady Lazarus of this poem does. Um, Triumph. Where was I going with that? I was going somewhere with that. Mm-hmm. We said we'd come around to it in the end, but maybe you wanted to say something about it before we get to the end, even. Um, I, I um, have oh, thought. yeah. No, oh, I, I, got, got, it. I got, got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, go, it came go. back. Um, I was going to say, I do think she's also in some kind of indirect way, like, like sort of making fun of herself slash triumphing over herself mm. because it, oh, right. to bring back that idea of control we brought up earlier, I think that that was one of her like kind of career long battles. Um, sadly a short career, but she did, she did write from like a very young age until her death. Mm-hmm. And she was constantly writing in her journals about like, Oh, like my poems are like too neat. I'm too, I'm like this kind of like neat control freak. Like my poems are so tidy. Um, and you know, when she met like Ted Hughes and his crowd, she thought like, oh God, these are like wild men. I want to be more like that, right? right. Um, and so when she when she does this very like controlled, knowing, seemingly um, ironic, like I do it so it feels like hell, I do it so it feels real. It feels like she's triumphing, triumphing over that neat version of herself that needs things to be like perfect and tidy in a way. Uh-huh. Oh, I love that. So she's she's triumphing over it in the sense that um, she's she's not being tidy. She's doing something that that feels like hell and feels real. It doesn't feel like schoolgirl something. I don't know. Um, sorry, yes. pardon me. But um, but it's also it's like triumphing over that tightness of control in a way not by like running away from it but by like going through it and like into it you know yes and like yes doing it with like clear intention um Mm -hmm. like a real like sharpness and meanness of intention as opposed to just like oh this is just like you know my she's not just like growing her hair out and sort of like (laughs) relaxing (laughs) she's like you know, it's like the opposite of, you know, I always think of that kind of scene in a movie where the, um, where like the librarian who has her hair up and the glasses on or whatever, like takes mm-hmm. off her glasses and lets her hair down. And you're like meant to be like, oh, she's beautiful. The Plath, it's more like, I mean, hair comes up at the end of the poem too, but, um, but, but the, but it's more, it's more like she sort of tightens the screws Yes. And that's what gives the poem the power in a way. Right. It's like she gets control over her control, whereas previously she had felt like she didn't have control over her control. She was controlled by it. Yeah. Yes. Right. 
she says um, she says in the note that she'd written for that for the um, for the BBC about this poem. This, I mean, this is as good as time as any to to read it. But she says this poem is called Lady Lazarus. The speaker is a woman who has the great and terrible gift of being reborn. The only trouble is she has to die first. She is the <laughs> phoenix, the libertarian spirit. What you will. She's also just a good, plain, very resourceful woman. Um, so, you know, this kind of mixture of like the mythical and the ordinary, you know? Right, um, right. There, there too. Um, and a, a very um, kind of undecided quality, I think, in the poem itself around like, like what is, what is this character, or this persona's goal? Is it to finally die or is it uh-huh. to keep returning? That's, mm-hmm. um, that's a little bit unsettled. Yeah, earlier she says, like the cat, I have nine times, and this is number three. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's impossible to read the poem without thinking, like, well, this was number nine or something, you know. Right. Um, um, I'm, I, I'm, I want to get a little further um, into the poem, and I've also always been fascinated by the lines. Um, there's a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There's a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there's a charge, a very large charge for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of hair or my clothes. Um, that word charge, it get, keeps mm-hmm. getting repeated, mm-hmm. is I think a pretty like multivalent, interesting word. Mm-hmm. That's a, that would be a good for your list of like plath words. Yes, to, yes. You know, you may be, you may be, writing a plath poem if you include that word um what what do you um and and of course hearing it in her performance you really hear that kind of mid-atlantic it sounds it that's that's her sounding most new englandy to me too because she's saying like charge you know and that Mm -hmm. that, um anyway what do you think of that word or that moment in the poem Um, yeah do you have thoughts there oh yeah i mean this this is a really one of the really electrical parts of the poem. Um, I, no pun I mean, intended. <laughs> yeah, no, very much intended. Um, yeah. I think you know again, large charge is like hilarious to me. Like grave cave, large charge. Like these are very Good. funny choices. But I think more importantly, I I didn't. This is one of those things that I doubt. I don't think I realized until one of my sort of later in life reads of this poem that like, oh, clearly charge, like there's this sort of um, the, the double meaning with her electroshock therapy. Yeah. And like she was, you know, very... I guess I'll use the word preoccupied again with the, the like images mm-hmm. of electrocution. Like that's, you know, the way the bell jar starts that famous first sentence. It was, um, it was the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs. It was a exactly. queer sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted yeah. the Rosenbergs. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, like it's interesting enough in and of itself, actually, without even needing to think about that, that double meaning, like just the repetition of charge, like, Instead of cost, because the lines would make sense, you know, if it was, mm-hmm. there, we wouldn't have the the rhyme, but the eyeing of my scars, there was a cost. Um, there is a fee. I'm trying to think of possibilities. <laughs> right. There's None a price. It, not, it, it Whatever. all sounds terrible. Yeah. But okay, <laughs> go on. Um, but yeah, like, so like a charge is, is just like sort of a weird, 
it's it, it it's it's that carnival language um you know like this she's like the the sideshow um but also of course like yeah the there's the electric double meaning and that but that to me somehow in the poem this poem is so like embodied like i want to mm. believe that that's one of those things that was not overly determined like that her like 4 a.m mm-hmm. mind just that's the first word that came to mind and mm-hmm. <laughs> like all the sort of polysemy and lovely echoes throughout all of her other whole body of work mm-hmm. like were not something that she like sat down and decided to do consciously at that moment so much as it just like zapped <laughs> and happened right right that feels right to me i mean it because you know it also so right so right when when plath had her um um uh, you know what in i think her own words she would have referred to as a breakdown or her a kind of depressive episode mm-hmm. and suicide attempt in um in late adolescence or as a 20 year old whatever she part of the treatment included um electroshock therapy and it's you know um sort of infamously memorialized in the bell jar as well um the 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 so so i think you're exactly right to say that there that kind of history is kind of undergirding the use of the word here and the the kind of image of electricity charge also refers to like the economic trans transaction that it you know performance um requires or elicits or initiates or something like yeah look at me but you're gonna have to pay Mm -hmm. to look at me um and and but also i don't want to like lose in there too this idea of like the feeling that the that the poet is like tapping into a kind of power you know Mm -hmm. in a literal way like it's running through her fingertips she's electrified or something and which makes her dangerous um also to touch you know or um and um um and yeah the word um because of course the first time we get it there's a charge it comes that's a line break it's also a stanza break it's so it's a it's a really enjambed moment and you don't know whether i mean i think what you'd be inclined to think on a first reading of the poem is like, oh, she's talking about the f- the kind of feeling of being charged up, you know, or of being sort of moved. There mm. is a charge or like there's a, but then with the line break, it's for the eyeing of my scars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, yeah, I like, yeah. Anyway, I think, I think you're right that this is, this is a, mo- a moment that came to her as though, she was zapped um, <laughs> by by divine inspiration or something at at four a.m. But then, of course, like leaving it in the poem is something um, that that comes later. Um, this this um, sort of gets us into the kind of final movement of the of the poem, Elisa. Um, mm. Maybe it um, begins again for one more time. I don't know. Um, so, so, our doctor, so, our enemy, I am your opus. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, it feels like a new movement, yeah. right, at least, like a new yeah. act. Yeah, so, so, um, so what do you, I mean, if you had to give a kind of, if you had to put in, in a few words what 
what feels new or what what's sort of new about the tone or the voice or the kind of direction of the poem as it turns towards its final several stanzas, what would you tell us? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, that's so, so much like dying felt like, okay, now I'm going to sort of um, deliver <laughs> deliver my mm. message. This is more like now I am truly gathering my power. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like picturing like Ursula the Sea Witch, <laughs> Little Mermaid, <laughs> when she's like, you know, things just start like yeah. swirling around here. Um, like it just feels like there's this real gathering of momentum and like, it's it feels like a little terrifying, honestly. Um, so so her doctor, so her enemy. Um, I am your opus. It's like she's borrowing valuable. the. You know, it's she. She's got these um, titles in. You know, mm -hmm. her doctor, her enemy, the right. sort of figures of authority whom she's addressing. Right. Right, and I but it's don't as though you she's taking that? their power. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. Don't you? And again, that like this is just one of those things that happen when you read a poem over and over and over again. Maybe some people like just get everything about a poem the first time they read it. <laughs> but I, I feel like, especially a poem this long, I don't know. You just like people. you sort of fixate on certain parts and like gloss over other parts. But like mm -hmm. only recently did I sort of realize like, Oh, air doctor. It's like, she's talking to the doctor who gave her the electroshock treatment because mm -hmm. um, she like, but also, she, hated, also she hated it. Making so him much. German. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's like, she's just like, oh, another figure of rage, you know, like I've, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pulling in these figures of rage, like Nazis, um, mm -hmm. my husband who just cheated on me. And it's like, oh, also the doctor who gave me <laughs> electroshock therapy. Um, like he's suddenly in there and it's like she's just sort of like addressing her enemies. Like now, now is my time. Now is when I... Um, I, I truly overpower you. Um, and so it's like the sort of, I think that the humorous tone that comes in mm -hmm. is really, it's like, that's pushed aside. Like now, mm. now shit gets real basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I like, I don't, I don't think anything from here down after I am your opus is funny. I think it's like, like chilling and like, awe-inspiring <laughs> the pure gold baby that melts to a shriek what a what a line that is the it's, hell? it's yeah that's wild yeah that melts to a shriek it's like you know in order to i don't know when you try to you can't picture that it doesn't i mean that's <laughs> it's not a sensible way of talking but sort of what i see in my mind when i read that is like film like a like a mm -hmm. little like sped up little film strip or something with a kind mm -hmm. of sound effect layered mm -hmm. into it, you know? I don't know mm -hmm. what it means to melt to a shriek, you know? Melting gold, yeah, I don't know. And it's, the, well, anyway, I turn and burn, again, with these sorts of, like, internal rhymes and insistent mm -hmm. rhymes. And do not think I underestimate your great concern. There's so much contempt in that. Mm -hmm. Um Probably yeah, that's then, the longest line in the poem, too. I think so, I, too. Right. Yeah. I think so, too. So, and then so, again, a really so, short one, Ash, Ash. Yeah. 
and and this idea that um it it's like on the one hand she's giving herself up sort of presenting herself to the authority figure who's this despised you know and kind of masculine and germanic and whatever else kind of abuser and and yet she's gone like ash ash you poke and stir flesh bone there is nothing there a cake mm-hmm. of soap a wedding ring a gold filling the th- the sort of things that are left behind mm-hmm. you know the the burning of her body but um jokes on you right <laughs> you know she cuz she's you know she's coming back or something yeah and do you hear like Shakespearean echoes in that Ash Ash stanza as well? Sort of you poke and stir. I feel like double, double toil and trouble kind yeah. of. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that feels like the spirit of the thing. It does seem like a moment that's in, invested in, you know, like witchcraft or mm-hmm. a kind of um, witchiness like those like those witches in Macbeth. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm still thinking in a way too about that Lady Macbeth comment, which feels... <laughs> to me um right yeah but, i mean there's there's like so many um it's not even like metaphors really it's just like we're in this like metaphorical territory where you know the references are just kind of everywhere in all directions um mm-hmm. so like i mean when when i read that a cake of soap a wedding or a gold filling i do think of like the holocaust mm-hmm. um but you you don't have to necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we're like mm-hmm. you know it's already planted there from the beginning of the poem. Yeah, no, I th- I think it's there for sure. Yeah, um, but you know the kind of biographical reading at that moment too might say, well, a wedding ring is an interesting yes. thing for her to have in the yes. poem, where it seems like it's you know sh- it's being shed or discarded. You know, it's mm. a kind of a signifier and had and had been a really meaningful one to her of um, of a certain kind of identity and and is now sort of um sloughed off or grown beyond yeah mm. um beware beware out of the yeah, ash the, 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 the hair god hair lucifer hair. it's just yeah. the escalation there um yeah. <laughs> yes right uh like I'll leave descent. you yeah. <laughs> silly, yeah, you silly worldly enemies behind now. <laughs> now I shall confront God and the devil. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we got to talk about the, the the final stanza. Out of the ash, yep. I rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. Um, I'm going to ask an impossible question, Elisa. Get ready. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready? What does it mean to eat men like air? Like, what's the the wrong question? (laughs) No, it's not. What's the what's the right question? Um, but I, but no, it's 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 the right question, but it is impossible because, like that. This is, I mean, this is one of my like favorite lines of poetry. Ever, anywhere um but it's also like an exemplar of what a great line of poetry does where right. i think it just transcends meaning um, sorry so the wrong part of the question was the what does it mean part 
Not well, the, but it's not it's not yeah. wrong if you wanted right. me to say it doesn't like it doesn't mean anything other than I eat men like air. Um, uh-huh. It's it's so. Well, so, you know, I was saying like those lines that feel like beginnings are anti-final. Right. This is the most final. This is the finalist of final. It cannot be questioned. <laughs> it cannot right. be reckoned with. And it has to come out of this poem. Like, I think that is the, the miracle of this poem. Got like it. this poem makes that line possible. Um, and you can only understand it as the last line of this poem. Um, if it was in another poem, it might mean something and that would be its failing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But here, like all it means is I eat men like air. And it's just, it's just the most like, it's just the most perfect final line for this poem Mm -hmm. that um yeah it just feels to me like this is one of this is one of those poems that that teaches me like this is what a poem can do that no other kind of art can do you know so i'm gonna i'm gonna um i'm not letting go of it yet but i um i'm gonna sort of shift the way i'm asking about it because i think you know i think you're exactly right i think maybe what does it mean to eat men like air is the is the wrong kind of question to be asking about the right moment in the poem. <laughs> and also, I mean, I, well, and I think, you know, you described it as perfect and like perfection is a, is a very Plathian idea too, in a mm-hmm. way. Like, you know, I think of the poem Edge, of course, like the woman is perfected, right? Um, which also means like complete, you know? Or right. That's, that's the meaning she has, I think, in mind. So the question, what if I reframe the question not as like, what does that line mean or what does it mean to eat men like air? And instead asked it as like, what does it do to say I eat men like air? Like what, how does it, how should we, so she's doing this kind of theatrical performance, Uh right? And she tells us that at the end let's imagine we're inhabiting the kind of fiction in which like she's on stage and we're hearing that line. How should we feel about that line? Or like, what does it, yeah. what does that line do to us? I mean, I read it as the sort of ultimate expression of um, not just triumph, but transcendence. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like I am become God destroyer of worlds type shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, of course, like all these sort of like enemy opponent figures in the poem we now see are men. I don't think I necessarily see it that way when I'm just reading the poem before I get to the end. Um, to say, but I to think, say, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you know, go ahead. Well, I, I, I I want to hear what what you have to say. Um, so well, please, I think yeah. there's well something that I have wanted to talk about just in general in in Plath and in this poem um, is the like weird power of of one syllable words, which we we sort of talked about in our like kind of um, mean rhymes, but like you know yeah. here they're they're employed to much different effect and. I once heard Dana Levin say, um, actually, that's not true. 
I read her right <laughs> on Twitter. Interesting. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> some, she had she had heard someone say once, and I don't remember who originally said this to her, but somebody had commented like, "Oh, some of the best lines of poetry are just all one syllable words." Right. And ever since she said that to me, like I think about that all the time. Like so many of my favorite lines of poetry are at least mostly one syllable words, if not all one syllable words. There's a classic one from um Milton from Paradise Lost, which I'm not gonna be able to quote. Lakes, fens, bogs, something of death. Uh-huh. Sorry, Miltonus out there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yes, there's what is the power of the one syllable word? What why? I yeah, I I I don't know, but I think that that's mm. part of what is so powerful about it like i mean i love like a long word for difference Mm -hmm. or a long line for difference every now and then but i feel like for that um for a statement that is that sort of like spell like and final the fact that it's all all one syllable words like it's like the emphasis does not stop because if you have a long word with a lot of syllables there's going to be some um some like not emphasize syllables there's <laughs> probably Good. a more eloquent no, no. way to no, say that no that's right that's right it's it's <laughs> you like know? each word like the word the unit that is the word and the unit that is like the accent and so this is like in an accentual language like english yeah they they sort of perfectly coincident and i eat men like air it's like right there's a there's a kind of isomorphism or something between right. the the sound and the and the sense that makes it yes. sound spell like. Yes, because yeah. like you can um yeah, you can kind of give it a little like iambic sing song, mm-hmm. but like I feel like when you when you read the full poem and you get to that line, your inclination instead, like the poem has taught you to give power to every single word. And mm-hmm. I read it as like and I eat men like air. Yeah. Like oh, that's great. equal emphasis on yeah. every word. Every like every syllable counts in that line. There's absolutely nothing that you yeah. can glide over. Yeah. Um, so 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 in a way, maybe if the poem begins with like theatrical performance, it ends with that other kind of performance, you know, like the performative utterance in the in the JL Austin sense, like the yes. the word the words that make the thing happen, you know. Right, like, like, like you can imagine her actually or, disappearing right. in like a ball of fire right. at that moment. Yeah. 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 Right. So um so right, right, which is uh, makes it feel like magical or spell like. I, I love yes. that. Um, okay, um, Elisa, I feel like we could just keep keep talking, turn the page to the next poem, or um, now let's do Daddy. I'm ready. <laughs> um, but why I've, stop now? I know. Well, the reason why is. You know, I'm taking up too much of your time and who is going to listen to us ramble on any longer than we are already done. But before we um, end, um, I, I want to ask if you'd be willing to read the poem out loud for us one more time in your voice. Oh, I would absolutely love to. Um, and thank you so much for this. This is so enjoyable. I haven't had an hour long plus conversation about a single poem with anyone in a long time. It's been a real pleasure for me. It's the best. Lady Lazarus. I have done it again. 
One year in every 10, I manage it. A sort of walking miracle. My skin bright as a Nazi lampshade. My right foot a paperweight. My face a featureless fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin, oh my enemy. Do I terrify? The nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth. The sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh the grave cave ate will be at home on me, and I a smiling woman. I am only thirty. And like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them unwrap me hand and foot, the big strip tees. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone. Nevertheless, I am the same, identical woman. The first time it happened, I was ten. It was an accident. The second time, I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused shout, a miracle. That knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge a very large charge for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. So, so, Herr Doctor, so, Herr Enemy, I am your opus. I am your valuable, the pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash. Ash, you poke and stir. Flesh, bone, there is nothing there. A cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Herr God, Herr Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash, I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. Elisa, that was a terrific reading. Uh, thank you so much. And I loved how it felt just right and also quite different from from Plath's reading. And I'm really glad um, you indulged us with it. Uh, but the whole conversation has been a delight. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Um, and I want to thank uh, the listeners for hanging out with us for the last um, hour and a half plus whatever it's been um it's it's been it's been um a terrific conversation and we have uh, more coming uh soon so please stay tuned make sure you're following the podcast and all that good stuff um and um and there will be plenty more conversations coming soon be well everyone